You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Oh, the jewel of the Monday show. <laughs> Good afternoon, Chris. <laughs> is that me? Yes. Or is it the, the content? <laughs> it's, it's the segment which stars you. <laughs> not not just because it's, it's the last thing in the show. Like, thank God we're nearly <laughs> finished. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. Are you well? Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. In affairing the, the COVID storm as we're seeing it here. Of course, interesting because the UK is the world's experiment. We're the world's test tube where we relax restrictions. We let people do whatever they want to do and and we see what happens. And it's very interesting. We've got about 30,000 cases a day still going through the country, despite the fact that we have loosened things up quite a bit. Mm. More and more people are meeting in more and more different ways, doing more and more different things. We're not seeing huge, great spikes. We are seeing numbers climbing a bit. We're seeing a few more people heading off into hospital, unfortunately. But the number of people who are passing away remains very, very low. And that's the really reassuring thing. The vaccines do appear to be doing their job. They are protecting people from severe disease 95% of the time, which gives us you know, great reassurance and optimism that if we can get the vaccines into as many people as possible, that we will have converted this, what would have been lethal infection for some, into a trivial infection for everyone. Let's hope it stays that way. Yes, and what's the latest as far as uh, vaccinated people or part of the population that's been vaccinated? Well, we're up to about 90% of people have had at least one dose of the vaccine and about 80% have had two doses. So we're, we're well on the way to crossing what's dubbed the herd immunity threshold. But the problem is that the Delta variant, formerly known as the Indian subtype 2 variant, has really pulled the, pulled the rug from under our ability to do herd immunity in the respect of of stopping the spread of the infection through a population because in order to completely stop spread you have to have a vaccine that can prevent infection as well as severe disease mm. and in this case this this vaccine against this variant does not stop people getting infected we're still seeing people getting infected admittedly at a lot lower rate when they've been vaccinated compared with people who are not vaccinated but we are still seeing breakthrough infections just not severe disease and if those people are infected they can infect other people so we're not going to be able to drive the infection rates down to very low levels, but we are able to keep hospitalizations under control and therefore keep the the, the rates of really severe disease under control. And, and that's critical because we're going to start going into autumn and winter soon. And and that always brings enormous pressure onto to healthcare services. So this is going to be the time to watch what happens next. Will mm-hmm. it remain that way once the kids go back to school after their summer break? people go back into the workplace both after lockdown and also after their summer break and and more people are on public transport in the face of reduced controls and public health measures will that translate into a big surge or will we will we be able to maintain and sustain these low levels we're hoping the latter not the former yes i mean we saw packed stadia over the weekend you know watching um the 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 premiership the the matches that were going on you know teams like arsenal and so on playing uh, yeah. The less said about that, the better. But yes, we saw a packed stadia with 
spectators who did not have to wear masks and really chose a return closer and closer to what was before the pandemic. We're mm. inching, getting there, getting there slowly. We are seeing a slowdown in our numbers and the uptake of the vaccine. Men lag behind women in terms of um, keeping those appointments and vaccinating. They're not vaccinating at the same rate as women, which is an insight that has been talked about throughout uh, the day or since the news came out over the weekend. But the doses given are just under um, 10 million. Um, and uh, just under half of that is fully vaccinated. So we... That's very good, isn't it? I mean, that's from a, from a standing start and, and a fairly recent start. That's a good trajectory, isn't it? Yeah, but we're unhappy about the slowdown. What seems what, what the experts well, are saying well, is a bit of a slowdown. slowdown. It's among younger people. Mm. We've got a, a serious problem with... Uh, well, it's not a serious problem, but, but we've got an issue with younger people. There are about three in every 10 people under 30 who have not yet had a single dose of vaccine, that argues that they're probably not going to get any vaccine because they are choosing not to have it. And this is despite the vaccine being available to them for quite some time. And we think this this is a a consequence of of mixed messaging because Mm -hmm. when we first went into the pandemic, the message was this is a problem for older people. Younger people are relatively spared. They're unlikely to have severe problems Therefore, they're at low risk and things like schools can carry on, etc. Well, that sort of message has now come back to, to bite the program because young people are turning around and saying, well, if I'm at low risk from this, why do I need to get a vaccine? And, and it's, it's now the challenge is to explain to people that this is all about population level immunity, putting a barrier in the way of spread of the disease so it can't propagate so easily through the population. It, it doesn't stop it, but it does slow it right down. And also, we think it will help to protect the small but significant number of, of younger people who are at risk of severe disease or at risk of things like long COVID, yeah. which which we think vaccines will help to cut the risk of as well. So we, we ultimately do think that vaccination is the way out of this and, and it does appear to be working very well, but we have got an uptake problem with younger people at the moment. Mm, wow. Uh, let's see what questions we get. Uh, they are usually one or two uh, COVID-19 related questions as we invite you to uh, take up this opportunity to talk to the naked scientist. That's Dr. Chris Smith, the head of virology at Cambridge on 011-883-0702. Let's go to Norwood with Anna. Hi, Anna. Hi. Um, hi, Chris. I was wondering if you could help me, please. I listen to you when I'm not listening to 702. I'm listening to BBC Radio 4. And why do they still have the shipping forecast twice a day when Shirley ships and everything still have their own technology and everything? I mean, I, I used to go to sleep listening to it, but I, I can't understand why they still have, have the shipping forecast on the radio. Anna, I stopped, I stopped listening to the question when you said, when I'm not listening to 702. <laughs> what, what on earth do you think you're talking about? Why? What, what, what excuse can you possibly come up with for not listening to 702? Because I just enjoy listening to the to BBC at night when it's like got so many crazy people phoning 702. So. Anna, here, here's a thing for you. Um, one of my colleagues who actually works for us on The Naked Scientist he does some of the through the night shifts for Radio 4. And when you hear the continuity announcements, including that very long shipping forecast at the end of the transmissions for the day when everything closes down for the night, that is occasionally him. So a naked scientist, you're still listening to <laughs> a naked scientist. And therefore, by definition, you've still got a bit of 702 with you, even when you're on BBC Radio 4 <laughs> late at night. 
But the answer is that in the same way that, that England is glued to its traditions, like uh, people go out wearing full wedding regalia and woolen suits on t days when the temperature's nine million degrees <laughs> and you have to drink tea at certain times of the day and you can only hold the teacup with a finger and thumb and on the right hand and, you know, your left hand grips the saucer. Um, it's the same. When they try to change the scheduling on Radio 4, there's, there's basically nearly a riot. You know, you think you've had riots in South Africa recently. Well, you should see what would happen if you try to fiddle with the schedule on Radio 4, including the shipping forecast. There will be people out there um, barricading the BBC. Um, so basically they do it because they have to, uh, because the audience, the stalwarts, uh, don't want them to change it. And because people are, people are kind of love listening to the soothing dulcet mm -hmm. tones of all these unpronounceable names of shipping regions and, and what weather's happening there. <laughs> so it's purely a tradition that they can't get rid of. That's what it is. That's the one. <laughs> Anna, I once listened to the story of uh, uh, there's a gentleman for many years who used to do that job and to Chris's point, I think they changed him or they put somebody else there and there was an absolute outcry. Uh, I think the managers thought that he was too dull because of how he delivers it and all the, all that just that drone the monotonous drone um, and meanwhile there are people who that 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 appeals to so just give me a sense of that kind of the broadcast that that you i don't want to say endure <laughs> but that you listen to in terms of just the delivery it's just you know it does put people to sleep and yes. i think that's probably one of the good things that it does but it, it just goes on and on and on and you get same <laughs> you know you show these these towns all the, and i've been all along that coast and I still don't know where any of those places are, <laughs> and I still don't know what those... No, no one does, but we, it, you know, it's, it's funny, but people, people have, some people just have lovely radio voices, and uh, there's an old saying that, you know, that they could, they could just read the shipping forecast and I'd still listen, you know, they, they could read the train time <laughs> yeah. and I'd still listen, yeah. and, and to a certain extent, it's just the way they sound, it's just soothing, isn't it? Mm. And you just think, I don't give a toss what they're saying, I'm just enjoying listening. Mm. Lovely call. Anna, I think... Uh, thank you. Thank you for that one. Uh, a curious one coming your way. Really curious. Very different <laughs> from some of the calls we tend to get. Next, let's go to Imran in Rustenburg. Hi, Imran. Yes, hi. Afternoon. Yes, welcome. Um, what an is I, uh, I went past the supermarket. They're selling the, they're selling the sun lotion very cheap. It, it, it was very expensive, 50 plus. Mm. Or, because obviously they're going to expire soon. So, you think I buy it? I want to ask, will it, uh, first of all, it, will it harm me in any way? And because obviously the summer is now eight months, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, also, wherever you go, what's so special in that sun lotion? They're like hundreds of rands. If you travel, that's the first thing you don't want to forget. What's so special? What ingredients is in there that, that makes it so expensive? Yeah, so how does it provide protection? Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that, Imran. So a particular store is selling it at a reduced price because it's near expiration. Will it still be safe yeah. and what makes sunscreen sunscreen? Well, let's deal with the what makes sunscreen sunscreen first and then we can consider how that might or might not be impacted by age. And not age of the wearer, obviously age of the bottle <laughs> of stuff. What causes sun damage to skin? It's the very short wavelength radiation in sunlight and particularly the ultraviolet wavelengths 
These are very short wavelengths, very energetic waves, which are largely filtered out by the ozone layer, but not completely. So some still reaches the ground. And in high areas, especially, for instance, Joburg, very high. If you live underneath the hole in the ozone layer, for instance, across bits of South Australia or Antarctica, there's less attenuation of those ultraviolet wavelengths in the light that reaches the Earth's surface. And if your skin is in the way, then your skin's going to get a dose of that radiation. It's sufficiently energetic that it does damage to the deeper layers of the skin where the stem cells are that make your skin. So it has what's called a photoaging effect. It will damage the elastic tissue, it will damage the collagen connective tissue, and it could lead ultimately to inflammation and damage to the DNA in the cells that make your skin, and that means you're at higher risk of skin cancer. Mm-hmm. Both a type of skin cancer called uh, squamous cell carcinoma, which is classically associated with sun, with uh, sun exposure, and also malignant melanoma, the uh, malignancy of the cells that make the brown pigment in the skin melanin. So in order to protect the skin, what a sun cream does is act as a barrier between that light that's very energetic and the deep layers of skin. But if you look at what's in there, the, you, you don't completely stop light going through. You can still see your skin underneath the sun cream. So you have an apparently translucent or transparent barrier. So how can something that you can see through be stopping light going through? Because mm-hmm. light must be coming through it for me to be able to see my skin underneath. And the answer is that in the sun cream are tiny particles which are about the right size to be the same size as the waves of ultraviolet but not the size of the visible light that doesn't damage your skin. And that's why you can slap it on and still see through it. Because when the ultraviolet waves come through, they see a barrier, like a solid wall, which is these tiny particles, but bigger light waves don't see those particles in their way because they're much bigger than the particles are, so they go straight through. Mm. And these small particles are things like zinc nanoparticles. Also, sometimes titanium is also used. And these tiny particles are used also because they're very safe to the wearer. They don't, they're not health harmful to that individual. And they're very stable and they are easy to turn into an emulsion. So you have some kind of carrier liquid. You put the particles in the carrier liquid and then when you smear them onto the skin, they form a nice even layer, as long as you apply the sun cream correctly, mm-hmm. and that means you protect all of your skin relatively evenly, and they stay there for a reasonable period of time. Now, in terms of whether sun cream goes off, when we make products, we have to put shelf lives on them, especially things that are going on your skin, like a pharmaceutical or a, or a cosmeceutical or a cosmetic, because there is a chance that over time, those things will deteriorate, and they they won't perform as well as they should do. And so if they have deteriorated, for instance, all the particles have glued themselves together so you don't get an even layer of them on your skin, it could leave patches for your skin prone to burning because they're not properly protected. (laughs) So while the likelihood of this stuff going off, if you were to snap it up cheap now and use it next summer, is low, it's it's not going to go off and become some toxic, horrible thing most probably. What the manufacturer can't say is that it will work as effectively after that date has gone by Mm -hmm. as when it was brand new. So what you're saying is it's a bit of a lottery. The likelihood of it not working is very slim indeed because it's basically just particles that you're smearing on your skin and hoping that there's a nice even thin film of them that will stop the right sort of radiation. 
but you can't guarantee it. And that's why they put that magic date on there. Right. Imran, there you go. Uh, next, we go to Itumeleng in Randburg. Hi, Itumeleng. Uh, good afternoon, Azania. Good Hi. afternoon, Chris. Yes. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bachelor, so sometimes I tend to take on plastic containers of our food from family and friends. Mm-hmm. But I think what I struggle the most with is just the removal of stains from on, in those particular plastic containers. Yeah. So from gravies, yeah. So, I mean, there's countless remedies uh, on the internet. Uh, some of which can be used, I mean, using our bicarb to remove, but some, most of them never really seem to work. So you never really get that stain off. You know, mm. I'd like to know whether whether Chris has come across <laughs> that. Maybe you can suggest maybe a remedy that we can use so that we can you know, permanently get rid of those things. Yes, so he's taking home lunch boxes that have turmeric and all sorts of other staining spices. How does he clean those containers, Chris? Any ideas? I'd love to know the answer because I have the same issue because oh. I've got some <laughs> some Chinese takeaway containers that I want to use as lunch boxes. Uh, but the kids turn their nose up because they look a bit orange and they think, <laughs> I don't want a dirty lunchbox. What happens is that the plastic, because these are plastic containers, the spices and other colorants, which are colored compounds which are in spicy food, they're soluble in oil. And because oil likes to mix with oil, if you put oily food in a plastic container, the colorants which are dissolved in the oil will therefore also be carried into and can merge into the surface of the plastic so it goes in partly in thin small cracks in the plastic surface but also it just adheres tightly to the plastic because the oil likes snuggling up next to other oily molecules very difficult to get it off you need some kind of detergent which is good at grabbing oily things and a good scrub, but you might have to because it's going into surface imperfections in the plastic and small cracks and and gluing itself to the oil surface. You may have to actually abrade the plastic surface to get some of those stains off. And that may actually be more health harmful because you're Mm. liberating more plastic particles that you might then end up eating, which is not necessarily a good thing, but you'll definitely be washing them down the drain and then they'll end up in the environment. So the best bet is to live with the fact that if you've made the food in there scalding hot, if then wash those things in very hot water with detergent, there's going to be nothing in there that's going to cause you any harm. It just doesn't look great, but you're not but you're not probably going to be able to get it off mm-hmm. without more harm to yourself, the environment or your wallet. So probably better to live with it and done with. Mm. And what about something like bleach? Does that contribute to the release of those plastics? Well, bleach can be used. Most plastics are um, not uh, harmed by bleach, which is why you can get your bleach in a plastic bottle. <laughs> but um, it's not a guarantee that it's going to get into the oily molecules that are giving it the colour and yes. get it out. You could try, but then, of course, th- these are all d- denting your wallet and very expensive, and mm-hmm. you might splash them on bits of you that doesn't want bleach like your eyes, and therefore, do you really want to take <laughs> the trouble and risk of doing that? Yeah. And for, for what gain, you know, if you're willing to put up with the fact you've got a slightly orange container, you could just live with the fact. Mm. Well, Idumiling, uh, one of our listeners has tweeted to say cleaning plastics is with bicarbonate of soda. So they say it works, this remedy that you say you've tried, that you found online. It is, um, that's a little tiny bit abrasive because when you first put it in, if you rub them with the powder, yes. it's it's abrasive and that will help to rub off the surface of the plastic, taking ah. the colours with it. So that might be the mechanism by which that's working. I'm just speculating. Yes. And then Elizabeth says, um, so maybe by storing clean oil for a long time, will pull the stain out 
Well, it might do. Uh, if you were to put something oily in there, you would definitely see that some of the stain would migrate back into the oil. But it's likely to take quite a long time because if you think about it, there was a huge amount of the coloured stuff in the food in the first place and a tiny amount has been pushed into the plastic you've got to wait a long time for it to come back out and you probably have to heat it up to make sure the plastic expanded, opened up any gaps or pores in the plastic right. molecules and encourage the oil to bash into the side of the container a lot in order to, to pluck out the, the coloured molecules. Right. I, I think this is probably into the realms of totally not worth it. Hmm. Okay, Itumilin, you've given us one to to explore. Maybe other listeners have yeah. remedies they've tried, and uh, we'll talk about it depending on the re- reaction that we get. Maybe touch on it again tomorrow. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Antonia. Thank you. Bachelor Itu um and uh, how do you clean your plastic containers? Do you leave? Are you happy to leave them stained, or have you found a remedy that works? Or your approach with the bicarbonate of soda, even though it might be abrasive, and we know the risks, as uh, Chris has explained. What is risk-free? The risk-free way of cleaning those plastic containers, discafteen your Tupperwares. Andrew, you're calling us from Foys. Hello. Hi. Hello. Yes, Andrew. Chris, um, my question is, how does, for instance, a snake, a black mamba, know to only ever mate with another black mamba and never does it mix with any other uh, snake in this example? Okay. Yep. Um, This is true of pretty much any species on Earth, isn't it? In the sense that anything that has sex with anything else, by definition, a species can only reproduce with its own species. There's, there's, there's a fertility barrier between individuals or animals of different species, with a few rare exceptions where closely related species can occasionally produce some kind of hybrid. So it all comes down to, to recognition of your own type. And dogs do it, cats do it, snakes do it, insects do it. Now, if you think about the, the problem that's got to be overcome, these are animals that might not have very good vision, and they might also be quite dangerous to each other. So how do they do it? Well, one feature is often smell. And so many animals will use smell and the odour profile to recognise a mate. They recognise smells that are both what we call odorants, chemicals that actually have odour, but also chemicals that have another signal, which is I am fertile. Those are called pheromones. So animals often recognise each other based on recognizing that there's something alive over there. Heat can tell them that, CO2 can tell them that. And then when they get closer, they can smell and they can, and in the case of toad, um, snakes, they actually are not smelling so much as tasting because you'll see snakes flicking their tongues out. What they're doing is tasting the air on the tips of their tongues and then shoving the tips of their tongues up into the roofs of their mouths where they actually have very sensitive organs which can detect what molecules they've brought in that way. Different snakes will exude different odours and different profiles of odours okay. and pheromones, mm. and this will signal that I am one of your type, I am uh, currently fertile, come and mate with me. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, Chris. We'll have to pick this up again next week because we didn't even get to all the calls and questions that came in, but there's always a Monday date. Thank you. It's a pleasure, and um, see you soon. Yep, that's Chris Smith, Dr. Chris Smith, the head of virology, our naked scientist.